So we're going to move from one easy uh, problem to solve uh, to another challenge. I'm very pleased to introduce Morgan Roland, uh, who works for the U.S. Military HIV Research Program, is a virologist, Ph.D. trained in France, postdoc with Jim Mullins in Seattle for the past two years at the Military HIV Research Program. She was responsible in, well, she was in Jim's lab and is continuing for some of the very important sequence analysis of breakthrough isolates in the RV144 tie trial, which uh, has, she'll discuss and has led to uh, helping to identify correlates of uh, risk. And she's going to, uh, on short notice, and we need to thank her for that, give, her a, give a summary of uh, highlights of the recent AIDS vaccine meeting that was a three-day meeting held in, in Boston just uh, in September. And so we, the faculty thought that this would be a good update uh, and clinically relevant in a sense of where we are and what, what patients and, and affected individuals are asking us about the future. So, Morgan? Thanks for the introduction. So, um, as you know, there are 33 million uh, HIV-infected individuals, so there's a clear need for a vaccine, and there's been a lot of research to try to find a vaccine, as this uh, stated with these quotes. With, we hope to have a vaccine ready for testing in about two years, and that was um, that dates from 1984. So, um, we've, so, so here, uh, this uh, graph shows both uh, the and immunity that is needed for a vaccine and the antigen stability. And what you see is that for the vaccine, the pathogens were, for which we have uh, um, efficacious vaccines, um, those pathogens normally elicit antibodies. And the problem with HIV-infected individuals is that very few individuals do elicit antibodies. And when they do, usually it's uh, after several years of infection. So it's been a real problem in terms of trying to um, I create a vaccine that would elicit antibodies because we don't see them very often in natural infection. The second problem is that HIV is very variable. Um, and it evolves um, a million times faster than the human genome. So there's also a lot of um, viral replication. So you have an, an, an enormous number of viral particles that are always changing and always evolving. Um, and with very many different ways to generate um, uh, diversity. And here I'm plotting this uh, with data from um, uh, four uh, HIV-infected individuals looking at the HIV envelope. So the envelope is the coat of the virus, and that's the most viable region of the genome. And if you look at our, um, we are looking here at the number of mutations that you see in the envelope over the first 250 days of infection in four different individuals. And you see an increase of about 1% per year um, for those uh, four subjects. And if we put in parallel the data for flu, we, here it's data um, corresponding to um, the uh, flu epidemic uh, viruses sampled in the U.S. between 1965 and 2003. And what you see is that the level of mutations that you see in flu over those 40 years is comparable to what we see in HIV in, in a single individual. Um, um, over the first 200 years of infection. And of course, flu and HIV are absolutely not comparable, but um, in terms of, we know that for 
flu, the, va the vaccines need, need to be updated very frequently. And we see that the scale of the problem with HIV is um, much um, higher. So what we need to, um, to know better in terms of trying to um, get a vaccine is to get a better understanding of acute infection. And for this, there's a new cohort that was um, recently established in uh, East Africa and in Thailand. And what they are doing is they're, they're testing for HIV uh, by nucleic, nucleic acid tests twice a, twice a week uh, with finger sticks. And so people are enrolled in the cohort uh, as soon as they become infected. And this has given really a, a, a very detailed understanding of the profiles uh, here. Of the, um, here I'm showing the viral loads uh, over the first 100 days of infection. And what you see is that there's a lot of diversity between those individuals. And here it's uh, only 39 um, individuals. Um, I mean, of course, it looks like the textbook case of high peak viremia and going down to set point. But um, there's quite a bit of variability. It shows also um, that I think it's the first data where you can really estimate um, the, peak, uh, the number of days to peak viremia where it's really uh, not based on retroactive uh, findings. So it's, uh, here it's estimated to be 13 days. What is also interesting is that by 42 days, the nadir viral load um, does correspond to what the set point is going to be at six months or 12 months. Usually set point is measured at 12 months or six months or 18 months. And here at 42 days, we already see the same, uh, the same viral load as what will be set point after. So clearly those first few weeks of infection are really critical in terms of what the infection is going to be afterwards. And here it's the same data plotted separately uh, for uh, female and male, and that's something that has already been reported, that viral loads are higher uh, in men than in women. Um, and to even get a better understanding of the early steps of HIV infection, so Jack Estes and um, Brendan Keel at the National Cancer Institute in Frederick are doing a very interesting studies to try to better um, identify um, what are the, the initial steps of infection. So they have a viral stock that, that is very well characterized, and they infect the monkeys mucosally, and they try to track the virus from the initial site of infection and how it gets disseminated um, in the different organs and in the blood. And so that, they, so, that gives, um, so that's also a, really the best way to get a better understanding of how the virus, uh, how the reservoirs are established and how the infection um, gets disseminated. So in, terms of, so in terms of HIV vaccine strategies, I do often think about it as um, trying to square a circle. And so I'll try to show the data looking at four different angles. And we'll start with uh, variability-inclusive design. So because HIV is such a variable pathogen, um, a lot of effort has been focused to try to create vaccine inserts that would try to cover all of the diversity of HIV-1 vaccines. So if we look here, it's a tree um, looking at all the diff different viruses, uh, sequences um, of HIV. And the idea is that you would want to take the most common variants in, in this uh, population of viruses and go to um, different layers of variability. The idea is that you would 
want to increase the probability that an infecting strain would match the vaccine antigen because you have uh, your infecting strain can be from one tip to the other tip of the tree. Um, and the idea is that you'll, you'll be able to induce CTL responses to a number of different circulating strains, and this could block CTL escape pathways. So the best um, method to do this uh, was described by Will Fisher uh, in 2007, and it's called the mosaic. So they went on from the theory to actually look at how this was working. So in a mosaic construct, you choose the number of inserts that you want to have, and here they are testing um, uh, four valent um, antigens, and they're comparing it to um, s constructs that are single length. And what you see when you're using a mosaic construct is because you have more inserts, you get more responses um, than when you're using a single construct, um, a consensus, or a natural strain. And since uh, those studies that were just looking at immunogenicities, and now they've been using this, um, this vaccine construct in a challenge model in, the, in, the, in monkeys to try to see if they were able to block infections with the mosaic construct. And that's uh, very recent data that was uh, presented last month. And they've shown protection in the rhesus, uh, in the rhesus monkeys model uh, with, um, with an ad MVA vector uh, with an insert corresponding to mosaics. And the interest of this, so what, what we want to do with a mo having a mosaic construct is that you're, cover, you're having responses that will cover more different pathogens. So here they're showing um, the data where you have responses to different subtypes of HIV, subtype A, C, D, F, and M. C is the most prevalent subtype uh, worldwide. And you can see that with those constructs, you have responses to the different um, subtypes. And um, those mosaic constructs have now entered a phase one a clinical trial in humans uh, with a NIVAC vector that was started uh, late last year. So word of caution in terms of how much variability we can um, integrate in a vaccine is, is just that when we, when we take those 514 sequences, this tree corresponds to 514 sequences. If we dissect it in every possible 10 mers, we will have about 20,000 10 mers. And um, over two-thirds of them are unique. So when we are trying to integrate um, most of the variability of HIV uh, in a vaccine, we can absolutely not integrate all of the diversity in HIV, or we would have a, a vaccine that would have 500 inserts, and that's absolutely not practical. So it's really the most common part of the variability that, um, that is um, that can be integrated in the vaccine. And that's also what has led people to think, okay, maybe we're not going to be able to have a vaccine that would cover all of the diversity. And so the opposite strategy is instead of trying to, foc to take into account all of the diversity of HIV, is that you would want to focus on the most conserved regions of HIV-1. So those that... Um, that are, there are regions of the genomes that are conserved in HIV vaccine sequence. And the strategy is that if you were to focus responses to those segments of the virus that cannot mutate, you would have also a benefit because if there's a mutation, um, the, the virus will, will, there will be a defect in the virus.
virus and you may have lower viral loads at the rational for this strategy. And the idea is also that you want to avoid responses to the variable segments um, because those variable segments can act as deco immunogenic decoy in terms of um, immune responses. The advantage of this strategy is that if you have a vaccine it would, that um, only focus on the conserved regions, it will be applicable everywhere because uh, it would work for every um, individual strain of HIV. So the goal is to focus, amplify, and redirect immune responses to the conserved regions of HIV-1. And this strategy has been uh, proposed by different groups, and there's data from Thomas Anker's group um, in Oxford in the UK. So that's um, a schematic representation of the, the vaccine uh, construct they insert. Uh, what you can see is that most of the vaccine is constituted by Paul, um, because Paul is the most conserved gene of HIV-1, which makes sense because um, to maintain enzymatic functions, you need to have conserv conserved uh, enzymes, otherwise it would not work. Um, and this vaccine has been tested in humans, and it has been shown to um, in a phase one clinical trial, and it has been shown to be safe and immunogenic. Um, the conundrum of using conserved vaccines or a vaccine based on conserved regions is that if you compare them in terms of immunogenicity with a full length uh, insert, you may not see as many responses as if you have a full length um, candidate, just because if you have one third of the vaccine, you may, of, the, of the length of your insert, you may not see as many responses. And that's something um, that has not been, the idea is that with the responses that you would get with a conserved based vaccine would be the best protective responses. Uh, but in terms of numbers, if we are just looking at numbers, of course, there are usually less responses with um, a conserved antigen. Another way to try to focus um, immune responses on very specific regions is to use scaffolds. And scaffolds have um, really failed at the beginning for HIV. Now there's new data uh, using RSV. So the idea is that you take um, a, a scaffold that corresponds to a, a different construct. Here it's um, EBB. And then you put um, little pieces of HIV that you want to have your immune responses directed to on top of this uh, scaffold. And they've seen really very, very nice neutralization titers with, um, with RSV. So they're going back, um, and those studies are led by Bill Schiff uh, at Scripps, and they're going back to try to see what did not work in HIV before. So the third part is um, in terms of trying to get better vaccines or an, an efficacious vaccine soon, um, is there's a lot of understanding that we can get from vaccine efficacy trials. So there were, um, in the last five years, there were uh, two major large vaccine efficacy trials. And here I'm showing a tree uh, with all the sequence data that has been generated from people who were infected in those trials. So this, the STEP trial um, was um, testing the, um, um, the Merck at 5 uh, vaccine, which was supposed to work by eliciting CTL responses. Uh, immunizations were interrupted in September 2007 because uh, it, would sh it was shown to have no efficacy in terms of reducing infections or reducing uh, viral loads. Um, and um, Fambili was a companion 
uh, study also testing the same candidate but in a different population. Fambilis was uh, testing uh, people in, uh, it was um, run in South Africa where people are infected with subtype uh, C. And uh, the last uh, trial is RV144. And I'm going to describe RV144 a little bit more. So RV144 was conducted uh, in Thailand, and that's the first uh, large vaccine efficacy trial in, in HIV that showed a modest level of protection. So it, um, there were four priming injections of a canary pox vector, um, and then two booster injections of a recombinant GP120 proteins. Um, those corresponded to subtype B and subtype E. E is a predominant strain um, in, in Thailand. So it's a restricted history, uh, this um, um, map uh, shows where, which subtypes are predominant in each um, area of the world. And, uh, and Thailand has a very uh, distinct epidemic with subtype E. So the, the vaccine was including subtype E and subtype B at the same time. So the vaccine was given to six, over 16,000 individuals um, and it started in um, October 2003 and ended in uh, September 2009. And at that time, there had been 132 infections. Um, and if we look at the modified intention to treat data, um, the vaccine efficacy was shown to be 31%. And that was um, significant. So, and these studies have been now um, just very recently reproduced uh, in the macaque model where they see the same level of protection using uh, similar constructs. And since it was the first vaccine trial to show some level of protection, um, there was um, a lot of work to done, initiated to try to understand what was behind this very modest level of protection. Um, about uh, 35 different assays were originally tested in pilot studies, and then six different uh, immune vari variables were considered to do a case control study. So with um, all the vaccinees that had, um, um, uh, so taking 40 vaccinees and then uh, 200 uh, placebo um, vaccinees who didn't, uh, 40 vaccinees who became infected and 200 who did not become infected, and looking at those um, different immune uh, responses. And what they found is that um, IgA antibody binding to the envelope were negatively associated with the risk of infection, and the most uh, and all the characteristics that is better understood is that GP70, V1, V2 binding antibodies uh, were associated with a decreased risk of infection. So people who had high levels of V1, V2 binding antibodies had a decreased risk of becoming in HIV infected in this trial. And we've uh, found um, independently also um, V2, a signal in V2 uh, to be linked with um, the vaccine efficacy. So what we've done um, is when we look, so when we look at uh, viruses here, um, with HIV, we cannot um, analyze the viruses based on serotypes because we don't have um, the classical vaccine efficacy studies were done usually using serotypes to distinguish the vaccine efficacy against specific serotypes, for example. Here with HIV, we don't have this. So what we decided to do was to sequence HIV-1 viruses 
um, from vaccine recipients who became infected and from the placebo recipients who became infected. And what we saw is that um, the vaccine efficacy was um, increased to 48% when for against viruses that had a K at position 169 and 169 in, is in the V2 envelope. And it was also in, increased for uh, vir against viruses who had um, um, with, a specific, with, specific, with mutations at site 181. So uh, in terms of defi definition here, uh, in those studies, we're only, looking, uh, we're only finding correlates of risk, and that's because we're comparing vaccine recipients who became infected to those who did not become infected, become infected and that's, that's why you only looking, uh, you're only finding correlates of risk. To have a correlate of protection, you would need to test that variable in a separate uh, vaccine study afterwards. Um, the advantage of doing the sequence analysis and so sequence analysis comparing vaccine and placebo recipients are called sieve analysis is that we are comparing the virus that is found in vaccine recipients to the viruses that are found in uh, placebo recipients. And because it's a randomized and double-blinded trial, if we see differences between the viruses that infect the vaccinees compared to the viruses that infect the placebo recipients, we can say that those differences are linked to uh, people having had the vaccine. So, um, so because of those findings linked to RV144, there's a lot of interest now in trying to better understand what's happening with uh, V2 and what are the immune responses um, linked to uh, v, v, the variable loop 2 of HIV, which was not a popular uh, topic of, uh, in HIV uh, before. So what um, this data, it's data from Nicole Doria Rose from um, the VRC, and what they found is that with specific mutations, you abolish um, you abolish certain interactions and you see less sensitivities to V1, V2 antibodies. And what's interesting is that one of the sites that she identified is the same site as was identified as being critical for protection in RV144, so site 169. Um, and site 169 also shows up in the data from uh, Penny Moore um, looking at um, HIV-infected subjects in South Africa and where she sees that if there's a mutation at K169, um, the sensitivity to antibodies is a resistance to neutralization is very much increased. And there's data here from Jason McClellan where he looked at um, different antibodies. So CH58 and CH59 are antibodies that were um, pulled from HIV-infected individuals in RV144. And, um, and they are looking at the structure um, in, with, um, with HIV. And what you see is that those antibodies are... Um, are binding in a different conformation than is uh, the PG9 antibody. And PG9, and, uh, PG9 is um, a broadly neutralizing antibody. So if we want a vaccine, we would want vaccines that would elicit PG9-like antibodies that were, would be broadly neutralizing. CG, CH58 and 59 are just binding and they are not neutralizing. So here we're having um, different conformations and that might be linked to the function of that um, um, of um, the efficacy of um, antibodies. 
And of course, um, if we those, there was a lot, that's a lot of data about antibodies, but if we want a, um, a successful HIV-1 vaccine in addition of antibodies, we would need to have T cell responses. And this is a paper uh, published last month uh, in Nature Medicine by Louis Speaker, uh, Louis Speaker's group, um, and it shows that um, the, res the critical uh, responses that are associated with protection were lymph node T cell um, responses um, that were mediating protection in a model, an SIV uh, model. So, um, and last, um, there's a lot of things that I'm not talking about, but there's one aspect of research um, which is uh, going to be important in terms of future vaccines. It's trying to modulate innate immunity um, to, try by, uh, to try to enhance the adaptive immune response. So uh, there's a lot of uh, studies now to try to compare different vectors that are available or different adjuvants and to try to see how they can enhance the, the responses, that, the immune responses that you, um, that you see. And this will um, hopefully be integrated in the future uh, vaccine trials. So in summary, um, I've uh, shown data showing that uh, mosaic HIV antigens were, um, are now in clinical trials in humans, and they were shown to be protected. They were shown to be um, offering protection um, in a challenge model in um, SIV. Uh, vaccine based on conserved HIV-1 segments are safe and immunogenic in uh, humans. And there's now the proof of concept that epitope scaffolds could work. Um, the role of lymph node T cell responses in the control of SIV infection, and that offers a rationale for safe and persistent vectors. Um, there's data that I did not talk about on therapeutic vaccination. And um, there was data reported at the meeting showing um, uh, it was um, something that had been, uh, people were very optimistic about this study based on the MACAC studies, but uh, it unfortunately had to be ter terminated due to safety concerns. Um, and the idea was um, there were uh, peptide pulsed uh, autologous cells um, that were um, with, with gag peptides, um, and that was tested as a therapeutic vaccine in HIV-infected uh, patients receiving heart, but um, this has ended. So, and in terms of RV144 studies, the role of antibodies against RV2 in mediating protection and HIV infection, and that's something that is um, hopefully going to be tested in the next uh, few years. So what's next? Um, in terms of follow-up studies with RV144 to try to reproduce the 30% um, protection, which was very modest, so not only reproduce, but try to find a higher level of protection because um, a, a vaccine could not be, I mean, there's no licensure for a vaccine that would only have 30% efficacy. So there are uh, further studies um, done with people who were vaccinated in the original trials, and they are going to be given a boost another protein boost because um, the vac that vaccine did not actually, the boost in that vaccine did not really work. And there will be future studies um, in high-risk um, populations. That's also uh, important to try to not have 16,000 volunteers in uh, such a large study that will be done in Thailand and in South Africa. Um, the next um, vaccine trial where we expect results is HVTN505. Um, and um, which is fully enrolled now. And this picture here is probably the 
most will be the picture of the year for HIV uh, research is the structure, the trimeric structure of the envelope, and um, it had resisted um, um, so we did not have um, a structure of HIV envelope until um, last, last month. So this will probably be very useful in terms of new strategies to elicit um, antibodies especially. So um, to come back to um, where squaring a circle, um, it's an imp trying to square a circle. It was proven uh, in 1882 by von Lindemann that it's actually an impossible uh, problem. And um, I do hope that um, finding a vaccine will be, there will be a solution, and it's not an impossible problem. But in the meantime, a vaccine uh, works with, um, in combination with other modes of prevention, and that's um, data, the building, those building blocks are a slide from uh, Tony Fauci. So thank you. So thank you, Morgan, for a terrific summary and update. Again, come to the microphone or fill out cards uh, for questions. And I might start with just one just point of emphasis. Um, maybe you could just restate very uh, tersely the issue of the IgG to the V1, V2 loop and the, and the sieve analyses and how those confronted one another and yeah, confirmed. So, um, so, IG, so the IgG level, it's tested, so it's looking for immune responses and we are looking at immune responses and, they are, uh, and those um, high antibody levels of V1, V2 were associated with a decreased risk of infection. Um, and that's done based on traditional assays trying to look at immune responses. The, different things that we did is instead of looking at, at those responses is we look at the viral sequences of individuals who became infected. So it's a totally independent assay. Um, we are sequencing those viruses. We sequenced about 1,000 viruses from those uh, 120 uh, vaccine um, vac uh, people who had received both the vaccine and the placebo and who become infected. And when we see differences between those sequences, we really have, because we know that HIV mutates in response to uh, antiretroviral pressure, to CTL immune response. And, and this data is really showing that um, HIV also mutates in response to vaccines. And here we are seeing a signal in V2. So that also points to the fact that those V2 responses we're probably responsible for the protection because we have two evidence, um, two separate independent ways of measuring um, the impact of V2 responses. Thank you, Bob. So a, a tremendous amount of inform, um, a tre tremendous number of studies have been done over the years of uh, antibody responses to HIV and the envelope protein. And I'm kind of wondering why the importance of V2 was never realized before and, and just sort of came up in this, as I guess, kind of a surprise in this vaccine trial. Yes, um, because it, it's true that in, in natural infection, V2, so most uh, people make antibodies to V3, and V2 was rarely mentioned. 
Um, and it was also not mentioned because people were trying to make antibodies against the most conserved regions um, of the envelope, and V2 is viable. One reason why it, there might have been responses in RV144 is uh, because this construct is, um, is a bit... I mean, the, uh, the conformation of the construct may have led to having responses in V2. Uh, it had a GD tag that had probably given the construct a different conformation that made V2 more accessible to antibodies. Um, yeah, I don't know, but it's not, it has not been, V2 responses have not been seen with other vaccines. We are seeing, um, so in, in, in an SIV model, we are seeing um, in a study from Dan Baruch, uh, he has seen uh, correlates of protection with V2 responses also. We will see in a couple of years <laughs> if this uh, is strong. And I would just mention in the, the 505 trial is uh, testing the VRC regimen, the DNA adeno boost, and in the phase 2A study in 204, uh, IgG to the V1V2 loops loop has been de detected, though the proportion of the total IgG response is lower than in the RV144 trial, but it's there, so it's. Uh, We'll be, hopefully be able to say something. Um, so a couple of questions, good questions from the audience. The first is, vaccines based on scaffolding for delivery, i.e. RSV adeno, does prior antibody to scaffold determine response or clearing of scaffold? And I think this is an important clarification. Yeah, so... Um yeah, I, I, well, I think it, uh, so the idea is that you would have a scaffold where you would not have a response. And there are different scaffolds, like some people use as a scaffold ovalbumin so that uh, it would not uh, interfere with HIV. But the idea, yeah, it's that you would need to make sure that you would not have interference of, the scaffold is just supposed to highlight uh, the little piece of HIV that you want to show and you don't want responses to the scaffold. But correct me if I'm wrong. I think the, the issue of the scaffold for V1, V2 issues, uh, that, that was a, uh, an in vitro way to present the yes. antigen to yeah. the serum to look for the antibodies. It wasn't delivered as part yeah. of a vaccine. Yeah. No. Uh, and the next question is, uh, mosaic vax vaccines seem to confer the greatest response. Can a modified mosaic vaccine be successful for or is the number of gag pole envelopes and subtypes too great to, to choose and hence expensive? That is, yeah, it so, to your point. Uh, yeah, so it would be um, the realistic way and what has been tested in monkeys, it's probably you know, bivalent up to five uh, lengths. And what has been tested is really between two and four and what is going into humans, I think it's two. Um, whether it's going to be sufficient uh, we don't know, but um, I, I'm optimistic about the mosaic. We need, uh, we, we need, we need to be. more studies. And maybe just a, a general question. Uh, uh, you mentioned therapeutic vaccines at the end, and what do you think the promise is? It's been a checkered history thus far, but uh, what, what's your personal opinion or what was discussed in Boston about the future of therapeutic vaccines? Yeah, well, I, I mean, they are needed. Um, I, 
I think, I mean, there, and it would clearly be if there, uh, with the issue of trying to get the reservoir at, out, you would need a therapeutic vaccine to try to enhance CTL responses. Um, it has not worked yet, but I think there, there are, I mean, there are more studies in terms of which um, CTL responses are important. Um, and so it, uh, there needs to be more research in therapeutic vaccines. And my last question is, will we cure first or get a pre preventive vaccine first? <laughs> I'll, I'll withdraw the it's question. A, it's a bet. <laughs> but we've started with the big challenges, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you.